wherever you stand, like, on the question of, like, how should we approach, like, leftist politics, I feel like there's almost no um, position in which, like, strategically, like, like, even if you concede, even if you, like, are of the opinion that their policies are functionally indistinguishable and that it's not going to, that, like, there's going to be no harm reduction in Joe Biden being president, I think I personally am still of the belief that that puts, that, that a Democrat in office puts the left in a better position to make its case because it gives us the opportunity to differentiate ourselves in, in important ways from Democrats that we don't have as much while Trump is in office. Because we can kind of, we can differentiate ourselves from Democrats in like, ooh, like how ineffectual they are in like combating Trump as, from like their kind of down state. But coming from the left, that's like rings very hollow, I think, for a lot of people because we have even less power than the Democrats do by far. So it's not like we're doing all that much to combat Trump in any in any um, material way either. So I feel like if a Democrat is in charge and they're, and the expectations of what they're actually supposed to do from their base get higher and higher, and we can point to specific ways in which we might do things differently and might get more done to actually help people, I think that's just a better position to be in because at, at the core, you need more leftists. Like if we're going to get anything done, we need more people that believe in the cause. We don't have enough right now. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, there's um, just a lot of people who are opposed to the buzzwords of leftism, like, uh, like you know, communism, um, reparations, uh, dead landlords. These are things that turn people off, you know, that are objectively <laughs> good things. Yeah, and it's not, they're not always words that are useful. Like saying defund the police turns people off. But I think it's important that we also make waves in making. I think that I think that doing the work that we can to like make like a phrase like that be more normalized is really positive and is worth taking a hit in some other ways. Whereas like thing, yeah, things like kill all landlords. Like <laughs> <laughs> there are like yeah, I mean like I'm not sure that that's doing enough for us on the other end to be worth the degree of alienation i think that's it's kind of a give and take no yeah no like the thing you i think the thing that i feel like the left has to understand is that like you should not give a fuck about alienation because the inverse side of your political ideology does not give a single fuck about alienation you know you can't keep moving your goalposts um rightwards and expect anything good to happen like you you just gotta hold strong for a while you know yeah and like yeah, and like the Republican Party. Even if party, that's against your own party, whatever. Yeah, and like the Republican Party feeds itself on pissing off the libs. Like, I feel like we could get people excited about pissing off conservatives instead of like this kind of stance that we've been taking, which is like we need to do everything we can to avoid pissing off the conservatives. Yeah, we don't need to um, appease the conservatives. We don't need to grovel for their moderate votes that are never going to come. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll end up seeing what um, if the move works out for the Democrats from even like a power perspective, if we actually pull, if they actually end up pulling a lot of former Trump voters. But I mean, we'll, we'll see. We, I, I, I don't pretend to be able to predict the future, so I don't like to say what's going to happen, but. Yeah, I'm not drawing electoral maps right now. I'm not that involved in the in the process, but I don't think anyone who um, 
was a Trump voter in 2016 is going to be swayed by uh, um, having a Kamala Harris VP? Probably or, not that specifically, no. I mean, I, I imagine that, that, that what whoever is going over to the Democrats from being a Trump voter in 2016 is doing so because of Trump himself and like how he's acted. A hundred percent. His biggest enemy is himself at this point. And I feel like the Democrats are taking a really similar strategy and just really... Recognizing that Biden's biggest enemy is himself and keeping him inside? Uh, I, <laughs> correct, but also like um, just solidifying their base because black women are the most loyal to the Democratic Party, the most loyal um, group to the Democratic Party by far. Yeah. So they're important. So they um, said Kamala Harris will be the best uh, person to be a VP and secure that vote. <sighs> you want to jump into this, Mark? I am ready. Yeah. You want to talk about am... talk a little bit about freedom? I would love to talk about freedom. I've been yearning for a discussion on freedom since we did Book Chin. That's oh, such an perfect. interesting concept. Well, I hope you have a lot of questions because I have, I hope at least, a lot of answers. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass P words. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah, effing with some wet ass P word. Word is female genitalia. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass P word. Give me everything you got for this wet ass P word. Welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Alex. And I am Mark. And the shoe is on the other foot. I'm doing I'm doing the reading for this episode for once. Mark, how do you feel about that? This is very exciting. I, I've never uh, gotten to react. I, I, I'm a little bit nervous that I'm just going to be weirdly quiet the whole time. Just be like, oh, this is like, this is great. This is good stuff. And like not say anything, so uh, hopefully that doesn't happen. No, I, I like when I have nothing to react to. Like I hate it when it like uh, what you say is so profound that I'm like mentally trying to process it in real time, and like mentally I'm just in a lazy boy recliner. It's hard. It's it's um it's a lot harder than people think to do to do reactions. You know, we we do a lot of work. The the podcast idiots, <laughs> the Gareth Reynoldses of the world. I don't get that reference, but I'm gonna laugh anyways. Ha-ha. He's the he's the guy who does your job on the dollop. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. In that case, do you just want to get into this? Dive. I in? would love. I would love to get into this. All right, we're cannonballing, folks. Do you want to do want to tell people what we're listening to, what we're reading today? Oh, I'd love to. So today we're going to be listening to a lecture from Angela Davis that she gave at UCLA for one of her classes, uh, summarized for you in real time, drawing on some uh, parts of a biography from Frederick Douglass, um, really uh, delving into the notion of freedom and how it can be defined and what um, parameters it can be uh, taken to. Sounds great. One of the more famous talking points that American conservatives love to bring up is America's quote-unquote freedom. It's a pretty abstract notion to say that we have a ton of freedom and definitely not something, at least by itself, you can base any real argument around. 
What does it exactly mean to be free? In this episode, we're going to dive into some of the 1969 lectures that communist, queer, Black Panther Angela Davis gave in her first course at UCLA, entitled Recurring Philosophical Themes in Black Literature, which is published for readers as the book Lectures on Liberation and a book we encourage you to read yourself. The ideas presented before you are meant to delve into the philosophy behind freedom as well as how someone's ability to be free can be hindered. As we go through this text, we're going to be talking a fair bit about Frederick Douglass's life as a slave. When we discuss this, you should first and foremost be thinking of America's centuries of abuses against the black population. However, as an afterthought, I want you also to think about the systems in your life and broader society that seek to oppress or otherwise control entire classes of people. This is We Read Theory. <laughs> so just like just like a quick um, anecdote that she included in here, uh, yeah. I also wanted to bring up... Um, Angela Davis said a white student came to her office hours and said, and keep in mind, this the class is called Recurring Philosophical Themes in Black Literature. And he, he came in and he said, hey, are we only going to be talking about black people or all people? Imagine fucking coming up to Angela Davis, a woman who's been in, wrongfully imprisoned for, for murder, who's been... I don't know, watched by the state for revolutionary activities and saying like, you know, black people have suffered a lot, but we should be talking about all, all people. It's the all lives matter of the late sixties, early seventies. And it's just fucking hilarious to me that someone have the absolute audacity to do that, especially to Angela Davis's face. Anyway, regardless, I think you should read that quote. I think that's a good quote. Oh, the quote? Yeah. It, I mean, in, in response to this, uh, Davis said, The slave, the black man, and the Chicano, and the oppressed whites are much more aware of alienation, perhaps not as a philosophical concept, but as a fact of their daily existence. We're going to get into alienation a little later, and how the bourgeoisie um, exists to keep the working class disorganized and pitted against one another um i love that she makes the distinction between alienation as like a physical as a philosophical concept and as a fact of like daily life because i feel like the core of like one of the cores of how conservatives misunderstand conversations about oppression is in is is that they only seem to be able to approach it from like a philosophical concept perspective and not as a fact of daily life and that's why they're so hung up on whether or not laws are racist rather than whether or not the actual existence that people live in is racist yeah it's really hard for them to put themselves in another person's shoes unfortunately it's not um conservatives aren't known for being the most empathetic of people by definition so Going back to the origins of democracy in ancient Greece, we can see that a majority of the population was enslaved and therefore wasn't really a representative democracy at all. This is mirrored in the writing of our constitution as 
quote, persons held to be in service or labor, which was a fancy way of saying slaves were not able to reap the same benefits of representative government that a white man could. So if you cannot vote, does that mean you are 100% not free in this aforementioned representative democracy? Davis would say no, postulating that freedom exists on multiple axes. It's not a binary concept. Is it something you were born with or is it experienced in varying degrees throughout your life? Is freedom taken to mean freedom of thought or freedom of action? By any degree, the life of a slave is not a free life, right? Davis plays devil's advocate to herself, bringing up a controversial idea from the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, that as long as a slave has the opportunity to rebel, he remains free. His only two options would likely be suicide or enslavement, but nevertheless, it can be reasoned that he is not completely non-free. Now, this is a Kanye-ass opinion. Um, we, we can tell, and then and Davis obviously does, does not fully agree with this, but brings up this point nonetheless. This concept is, of course, a ridiculous hyperbole, but brings up an important point. How is either freedom of thought or freedom of action defined, and how are each controlled? Davis then dives into the first section of Frederick Douglass's book, entitled The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, to explain this concept. Because Douglass rejects the idea that the color of his skin does not make him inferior, he argues that he remains free, at least mentally. By design, hallmarks of slavery are designed to enslave both physically and mentally, ranging from fear, awful living conditions, denial of education, and even a perverted version of religion designed to justify the status quo. To break out of this framework, Douglas would argue that the first condition of freedom is an open act of resistance. It is more than the physical refusal to submit to unjust punishment. It is a refusable it, it is a refusal to accept the hierarchy of one human over another as it is presented in Douglas's life. Douglas is quoted as saying, That slave who had the courage to stand up for himself over the overseer, although he may have many hard stripes at first, became, while legally a slave, virtually a free man. You can shoot me, said a slave to Rigby Hopkins, but you can't whip me. As the result was, he was neither whipped or shot. The first step in liberation is to reject the idea of oneself as a slave, even if just within your own mind. After he sees the physical re resistance, after he sees the physical resistance of a slave being flogged, Douglas can now liberate himself spiritually. As he educates himself, teaching himself to read, he is exercising his own will, breaking out of the mold that has been set before him and freeing himself. Douglas says, learning will spoil the best n-word in the world. If he learns to read the Bible, it will forever unfit him as a slave. He should know nothing but the will of his master and learn to obey it." Unquote. The slave has no goals or desires that he decides for himself, only the desires of his master. His entire own identity, 
personality and human condition is confined to that which the master has set out for him. This stripping of individuality does not make a slave stronger, and that the same way that you and your coworkers' ties or uniforms doesn't make doesn't make you more productive. It's all about conditioning. Do you know whether Davis uh, described herself as a Marxist specifically? If she was a Black Panther, she must have been, right? Um. I've seen interviews where I believe she's defined herself as a Marxist, but logically she should be. It, it's kind of the, the the one thing that's kind of striking me is is um, I mean this is uh, Frederick Douglass we're talking about, but what's really striking to me is that like primacy of the mind over the material condition when you decide whether someone is free or not, which is um, kind of at odds with like that materialism we talked about last week. I just think that's an interesting observation yeah it's absolutely um interesting when we talk about uh religion later in this Mm -hmm. in this script i think you'll begin you'll begin to see where um douglas's ideas diverge from um being only satisfied with mental liberation as to where he says fuck this um i know what i deserve so from all of this, we can see that his physical enslavement and mental liberation are at odds with each other, pushing him towards rebellion and closer to freedom of the mind, body, and will together. However, oh, that's 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 pretty dialectical, actually. Yeah, Frederick Douglass was a very uh, smart man. In fact, I'm not sure if you knew yeah. this. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> From all this, we can see that his physical enslavement and mental liberation are at odds with each other, pushing him towards rebellion and closer to freedom of the mind, body, and will together. However, this is progress, but not a solution, at least in Douglas's mind. The rejection of one's own treatment should not be the boundary by which your consciousness expands to. To achieve complete enlightenment is not to detest the master, but the institution that not only allowed, but actively catalyzed your disenfranchisement and misery. Wow, it's actually really impressive how many um, like Marxist concepts it seems that um, Douglas kind of hits on, probably without having ever uh, read it, and kind of comes to them of his own volition. Because that's that's in another in another way of saying that uh, that's like the development of class consciousness in a very direct and like simple way yeah absolutely um douglas is incredibly smart in in that respect i i i love how he does this but um also doesn't separate um race and class consciousness mm-hmm. especially especially in this time it's important to yeah especially in american history is so impossible to separate the two Absolutely. But when there, when people are in times of deep trouble, uh, people will often turn to religion. And in his young life, at least, Douglas was no different. Douglas found solace in his Christian faith as it reaffirmed him to, as it reaffirmed to him the liberty that he knew he was entitled to by virtue of just being a human being. 
And not limited to Douglas, abolitionists such as Nat Turner and John Brown were also spurred in their efforts by their deep-rooted Christian values. Mark, I can see you smiling because... <laughs> what? <Well, laughs> I was going to say maybe John Brown was a little bit too rooted in Christian values. He was. He was. He was a he bit was of crazy. an a- He was a bit of a fucking asshole, but yeah. he was an asshole abolitionist, which... For the time he was in, I feel like, you know, could have been worse. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would have been a Christian theocracy if he won, but without slavery. <laughs> <laughs> at, at the time, I guess that's the best we could hope for. <laughs> but, yeah, no, we, we stand John Brown's um, violent direct action in this household. <laughs> but on the other hand, Karl Marx was famous for his rejection of organized religion as a tool for liberation. Why exactly would someone care about suffering in the mortal life when you can follow God in your mortal life and receive eternal salvation in the next? Davis counters that these dreams have to start somewhere, so why not with religion? Just just as like a thing to get things started, you know? If I deserve eternal salvation, why is it impossible for me to have it here on earth? You know, what what God would do that? Why why is that allowed yeah. and valid? So, a very corrupted version of Christianity, you know, even by today's standards with your Joel Olsteins and your other televangelists uh, was used to contort this religion into something that could be used to pretend that an immortal higher power had sanctioned slavery and the treatment that Douglas was subjected to. Kenneth Stamp says in The Peculiar Institution, quote, through religious instruction, the bondman learned that slavery had divine sanction. The insolence was as much of an offense against God as the temporal master. They received the biblical command that servants should obey their masters, and they heard of the punishments awaiting the disobedient slave in the hereafter. They heard, too, that eternal salvation would be the reward for faithful service, and that on the day of judgment, God would deal impartially with the poor and the rich, and the black man and the white, unquote. The Bible was, in fact, taught to slaves, but, mo- but as most teachings of the Bible go, it was very selective. <laughs> yeah, you can't, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there that you definitely got to keep away. Like everything about Jesus. Everything the Bible mentioned about obedience and peace were definitely impressed upon the slave population, but things like freedom and equality in the eyes of God were altogether just left out. As a vast majority of slaves were not able to read, obviously, this was the only version of religion they were able to experience. And when this is the only version of religion you're able to experience, you're going to really grasp onto that because it's the only hope you have. Douglas was really put off by all this hypocrisy in the white Christianity that he was taught, and rightfully so. He aligns with Marx in this sentiment, who eloquently explains it as he says, quote, religious suffering is at the same time an expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the sentiment of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Unquote. 
Religion to Douglas is insufficiently reconciling the trauma by engaging in escapism and a sort of earthly nihilism. Religion, religion kind of seems like it plays an anti-dialectical role in a lot of ways, like where it smooths over the contradictions in society and tries to get people to like accept them as much as possible and, and kind of like slow down the dialectical development of a society, uh, specifically in the sense that it like stops catastrophes from occurring. Yeah, it's no, it's no, um, it's no mistake that, um, the Bible says critical thinking is the devil's work. <laughs> um, it's not, it, it's very, it's very easy to justify a lot of things when your excuse is let go and let God, you know, God has a plan for you. Um, uh, just, just, just follow this blindly. And then a lot of other things can cascade into that. Um, it makes it, it makes it very easy to have someone uh, adhere to all that. Hot take, Christianity was better when they were just a bunch of people like who were really fond of this dead communist and not like and not and not like organized in like the bones of the Roman Empire. I please take me back to that time, honestly. <laughs> Douglas claims that he truly felt that he had shed his religious ties when he finally stood up to a particularly cool slave breaker. Given everything that we've discussed so far, it should start to become more and more clear that the slave breaker and the air of fear that he maintains is probably the most vital cog in the machine of slavery. The slave breaker as described by Douglas was nicknamed the snake for how he would hide and wait, watching slaves and then revealing himself to dole out punishment if he saw anything he didn't like or, you know, if he just wanted to. Based on this, Davis asserts that while in a position of higher power, the slave breaker is more mentally affected by his position than the slave. So to maintain his power, the slave breaker has to maintain this facade of great strength in order to subjugate the slave. The slave can see that this absolute power corrupts absolutely, while the slave breaker cannot see how, this, how his humanity has been contorted by this uh, need to maintain this facade. And therefore, Davis argues, the mind of the mentally liberated slave is therefore freer. And she summarizes this nicely, saying, quote, How could the master have been independent when it is the very institution of slavery which provided his wealth, which provided his means of sustenance? The master was dependent on the slave, dependent for his life on the slave, unquote. And I also just wanted to read a quick quote from Douglas's book describing his act of rebellion against Covey, who's the slave breaker in question, because I think personally it's just really badass and well-written. And keep in mind that prior to this, Covey had pushed Douglas to the point where he collapsed from exhaustion and then continued to beat him so he may keep working, um, although not likely to keep working um, just because he could keep beating him. Douglas says, quote, 
At any rate, I was resolved to fight. And what was better still, I was actually hard at it. The fighting madness had come upon me, and I found my strong fingers firmly attached to the throat of the tyrant, as heedless of consequences at that very moment, as if we stood as equals before the law, the very color of the man was forgotten. Unquote. Keep in mind also that he was 16 at the time. So to rise up against your boss at 16 after your boss is beating you is fucking incredible. But you got to ask the question, why doesn't Covey just beat Douglas as he had before this point? You know, what, what's, what's stopping him from just doing what he had before? Uh, why, why did Douglas rising up against him um, incapacitate him? And it's because now the shoe's on the other foot. Covey is alienated just in the same way that each individual slave has been alienated and Covey's lost his mental will to fight back. So according to Douglas, Covey instead tries to appeal to the other slaves to help him saying like, hey, look, this guy is trying to beat me up. Like, why don't you help me right now? But seeing that it's totally possible to attack a slave owner, they, they're, they're not going to move like like the trance is broken, they see that this this kind of thing is actually possible. They're 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 not they're not going to do anything. So then Douglas will will let him up, and Kobe says, "Now you scoundrel, go to your work. I would not have whipped you half so hard if you had not resisted." Unquote. Which sounds a lot like I wouldn't have everything you. any cop has ever said in the last. Thank that you for is. summarizing that beautifully, Mark. <laughs> Anything yeah, any cop yeah. has ever said. Don't and, 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 don't make me beat you. Don't make me uh, beat you by quote unquote resisting arrest. And that's 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 of course that's that's an incredible story of resistance which actually occurred. But it's also a beautiful analogy and kind of microcosm of much larger and like social acts of resistance, like. In that same way, like that first bloodying of the nose or like that first like strike on the slave master is is in many ways kind of like parallel to like the burning of the Minneapolis third precinct. And it's kind of, what was that what, exactly what you were? Oh, That's... my God. I'm so sorry. This is, no, I'm sorry. You fucking say it. You say it. Please. I didn't even read that paragraph. I was not stealing your thunder. Oh, my I was God. Like, go ahead. Go we're, ahead. Go ahead. We're leaving this in just because Mark and I are on the same mind wave. Even oh, when God. Mark has the script in front of him, he's still going to think the same things that I think. <laughs> so. I really do believe that a lot of these points can also be applied to working class America. Take, for example, the burning of the Minneapolis police precinct. While the actual destruction of the building doesn't really do much for the Black Lives Matter movement or the anti-police movement, the mental liberation of every American gaining the knowledge that police precincts can be taken and burned is invaluable. Which Mark yeah. so eloquently explained earlier. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it's like, it's all. It's also. It, it kind of goes both ways. Where it's like, uh, when the people kind of dish it out, that can um, be be kind of a really important challenge to like that colonization of the mind. But it's all. But also, um, kind of taking it can also uh, lead 
to some degree to an end of that colonization or at least a reduction in it like uh the big um like upshot of us having so many people in this country now who've been tear gassed and who've been beaten and who've been shot with rubber bullets is that there's a lot of there's a lot more people in this country who aren't as scared of the cops as they used to be kind of ironically because it's like okay that's what you have and i survived and i can do that again if i need to which like it, it's it's really it's actually a lot less scary than that fear of the unknown which uh especially i think that white people and white leftists kind of have when it comes to the police because we aren't as experienced with you know not to cut like in general, not as experienced with dealing with police that are basically just out to hurt you, which uh, there are a lot more people like that now. Yeah, just not as familiar with direct action in general. Like, yeah. everything is impossible until it happens. And we've yeah. seen a lot of the impossible happen over the last four or five months. It's been incredible and so liberating to see. Everyone is... People are, especially especially that in Portland right now, People are being tear gassed every single day. People are being beaten every single day. And they, 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 they'll, they'll be hurt and then they'll say, that's all you got? And then be right back out there the next day. Yeah. The best thing any leftist can do is not be deterred by whether it's electoral politics or police brutality. Every time you strike that down you're winning it may not feel like it but you're winning every time yeah. you get someone to do that with you holy shit it's just so much better than any like shitty posting you can do although that is fun that's a, that's another reason why i feel like dialectics are so important because it teaches you to look at the world in terms of less and so in terms of victory and losses in a particular event and more so in where are the contradictions leading us? What is ascendant and what is on its way out? And I think that that um, is a really good... And, and so we can kind of look at the results of struggles in terms of have we developed the society through this action in a way that is going to lead to our later goals better? Have we increased consciousness amongst people? And I think that, you know, even if we kind of look at some of the you know, some of the good, some of the bad responses we've gotten from it, I think that the answer to both of those questions of have we developed in a way that's useful to us and have we raised consciousness on important issues, I think the answers to both of those questions are a resounding yes, and that gives me hope for the future. Absolutely. So don't, I guess, don't pay attention to electoral politics, at least um, as like a major source of your serotonin. Like, yeah, like yeah. make sure, like, maybe... Or try to organize something in your workplace. Organize the tenants under your landlord. Try to canvas for someone in the PSL. Try. It's also yeah. Well, you go. You finish. Sorry. No, no. That 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 was it. Try try to do things yeah. that that spur your own knowledge on. Yeah, and it's good. It, it it's it's also good to do things that are not political in a direct sense, but that make you. Um, sharper and that make you happier like that actually because when you when you're happier and you're not like being a doomer and you have hope and you have something and you have things that you like about the world things that you enjoy doing i think that that's another thing that really inspires hope in the future in ways that we desperately need exactly what's gonna what's gonna help the world more me posting on our twitter at we read theory pod 
about um, just making shitty memes or me sorting out my closet and donating a, a bunch of clothes or donating school supplies that I'm not using to um, help those teachers that are unfortunately, I guess, forced to work during the pandemic. That took a dark turn. Well, you you do run a Twitter account that is attached to a highly successful and far-reaching podcast. So for you, posting, <laughs> posting actually is praxis. <laughs> I hope so. I hope anyone we listening should, to this pod um, we should all be so lucky follows us at We Read Theory Pod on Twitter. We're actually close to hitting 200 followers, which is mm-hmm. more than I thought we'd hit. Um, this mostly started out as like a a, a verbal shit posting outlet for me and and Mark, but I'm glad it's it's grown into what it is. Yeah, I do. I do want to attempt to kind of hone in on what like the central thesis of this has been uh before we go just to see if we've we we, we've kind of got it so so how how about test me on this um so so i what i feel like i've learned is that freedom is kind of an abstract concept and it's pretty complicated but it's also something that and, and and the most important like form of reductionism surrounding freedom that we need to combat is this idea that it is a binary between being free and being not free because that's something that um because yeah it's just it's just like a lot it's just not how the concept works and 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 also understanding that freedom can be of the mind and of the body and how um when you find yourself in a position that's materially unfree um that like mental slavery also follows along with it and an act of rebellion requires you to kind of break that mental slavery on some level but also breaks it in and of itself exactly um like many things uh freedom exists on a spectrum you really hit the Mm -hmm. nail right on the head um just because you have the physical ability to do things doesn't mean you are um, 100% actually free to do those things. Yeah, but, and if anyone tells you that their, like, system is free and voluntary completely, like, they're just trying to sell you something. We make <laughs> trade-offs. Because we, not even people living in the natural world are totally free, you know? We make, we have to understand uh, that it's that it's a more complicated and subjective question. Yeah, but I digress. Um, I'll leave everyone with that and just say uh, I love you all and hope you have a good day. Love you all, babies. Good night.